it seems to be about time, so I'll go ahead and get started, because how many parasitic diseases are there in the world? Thousands, and so I've, I'm going to get through them all in the next 50 minutes. Um, actually, kind of a funny story along those lines, uh, uh, when, when the, I first got an email asking me if I'd do this again this year, I said, well, sure, but do you have anything more specific than treatment of parasitic infections? And I got the answer back, not malaria. Oh, well, instead of 11,241, now there's only 11,240. Um, but, so, so we're going to try to get through some of the, I, I tried to pick five of the, the fairly typical um, common parasitic infections besides malaria that we see in the world. Some of you are probably going to disagree with those, and I apologize. Um, send me an email, and then maybe we can add it in next year or do a separate talk next year as well. Um, but a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Charlie Mossler. I am a pharmacist. I teach at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Finley College of Pharmacy. I have absolutely no formal training in anything I'm going to talk about today other than a sincere interest. My training is in geriatrics. Predominantly, I'm going into nursing homes and, and looking at, at those patients, which is dramatically different than the 35-year-old farmer in Honduras who has some sort of worm infection. Um, so, uh, one of the things that we have incorporated at our College of Pharmacy, which we believe is still unique within about the 120 or so College of Pharmacy, is we actually have a class on tropical diseases. Myself and another professor um, kind of uh, do that to our elective together. And it's, uh, we, we're always amazed at the interest that students have in parasites. And obviously, some of you guys do too, or you wouldn't be here standing. Um, so, so, so hopefully some of the information, I know not all of it, you guys will find interesting. Um, another disclaimer before I begin is that we're talking about the treatment of parasitic infections. So um, one of the things that I'm assuming when we start talking about these, these diseases we're going to talk about is that somebody has already diagnosed that, yes, this really is leishmaniasis, or yes, this really is um, Chagas disease. Um, so, so I don't really go through a whole lot of the symptomatology of the patients, what they're going to look like, diagnostic criteria. There's just no way I could get through one of these um, in one hour instead. Um, and, in fact, most of these are one-hour uh, topics in that elective that, that I mentioned. So I had a hard time boiling it down, and I'm going to talk over I'm, I'm sure anyway. So somebody give me the high sign or just get up and leave when you're sick of hearing me. That's fine. Um, so... Disclosure information, since this is a CE presentation for some of you all, um, usually I don't have to talk about discussing FDA drugs being used off-label. Um, then this morning, though, I was thinking about this, and this may not actually be true. I may not really be talking about off-label use of some of these medications because some of the things we're going to talk about today, the FDA has never approved in the first place. So if they've never approved it, it's probably not truly off-label. Um, but anyhow, so we will talk about some drugs you may never have heard of before. Um, and, and even the drugs that are available in the United States, you still may not have heard of them before. Objectives, uh, we're going to try to get through those five diseases that we'll show you um, shortly um, and talk about them. We'll also spend a little bit of time discussing well, what does the future hold for these, some of these diseases. Some of them, future treatments are exciting. And some of them, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot really going on. Um, but... We'll discuss some of that as well. So, 
Parasites. As I mentioned, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of them throughout the world. Um, you know, parasites have parasites themselves. Uh, so when you look at it, it's a really broad scope of thing. The five that we're going to talk about today are amoebiasis, Chagas disease, which is American trypanosomiasis, which would lead you to believe, if you didn't already know, there's an African trypanosomiasis, um, giardiasis, which giardia is something that we can actually find in the United States. Um, as well as Chagas disease, or anamibiasis, I guess, leishmaniasis, and then worms. Where we're going to start, because this is the one, just from a point of reference, this is the one of, of those four, that, or those five, that we really see uh, in the United States. Now, we don't see all of these worms. Anyone know what the top left-hand type of worm that is? Round worms. Um, hopefully, in the next one on the right-hand side, you can figure that out. Hookworm, right? A uh, nasty little thing. And then tapeworm. And then finally, what's the teeny tiny worm down the right? Pinworm. And that's the one that we see, I don't want to say a lot, but we see more of in the United States than any of the rest of those. Um, what, what patient typically gets pinworms? Kids. And then they share it with their parents and their other kids they go to school with. And, and yes. Um, so back, background, just a little bit of information about each of those four. Um, when you look at scarus or roundworms, they're usually picked up in soil, fecal oral route. Um, up to one billion people, the World Health Organization estimates, are actually infected with them in the world. Now, a lot of them, a lot of those patients may have absolutely no symptoms. Some of those patients, when you get this big round ball of those worms, and if you're really interested in it, go to Google and search for a scarce, and you'll see these big balls of worms that they have removed from people surgically because they were causing bowel obstructions. Um, so it can be a very significant problem. Hookworms, again, same transmission route. Um, estimated number of people infected, again, huge, 500 to 750 million people. Um, symptoms, again, you get a wide range of them. Uh, severe anemia would be kind of the, what we're most concerned about with hookworms. Um, tapeworms, usually you get, not always, but usually you can get from eating undercooked or improperly prepared meat. Um, and then symptoms here range from none to GI symptoms of just bloating, cramping, um, just not feeling right, to seizures. Anyone know which one causes seizures or what that is caused, called? Right, neurosistercosis or cystercosis. Um, so we have a lot of uh, different ranges of tapeworms that can cause problems. And then pinworms, probably the most easily spread of these worms. They're all pretty easily spread um, in cases of improper hygiene, but pinworms very easily spread. Um, fortunately, you know what we see most likely is an itchy rear end um, from a symptom point of view. So next time you're at a daycare, nursery school, or kindergarten, you see a little kid itching their rear end, um, you have, you're going to think about, oh my gosh, that kid has worms. Um, I, I just put that plug in your head. So now you are going to wonder um, if that is happening. Treatment. I'm broadly going to cover treatments of these, but realize that within tapeworms, there are many different types of tapeworms, and not all these treatments are going to be all-inclusive. I've tried to go through and pick the ones that are most commonly used. Um, supportive care, in the case of the anemic patients, you know, we're going to make sure that maybe they're getting some iron supplements or that they're getting enough of the proper protein um, and diet within, the, or within their food to help offset that anemia. 
Most commonly used medications, the five that we're going to talk about today, and by no means is this everything, um, albendazole, mubendazole, ivermectin, pyrantal, and praziquantel. So, let's jump right into these. Um, albendazole. Has anyone seen this used in the United States? The only place I've seen it used, yes, so we have one. The only place I've seen it used in the United States is in my goats. We actually use albendazole um, in treating our goats for worms. Um, but it is available in the United States as a, as a tablet, and you will see it used um, for worms. The rest of the world uses quite a bit of albendazole for worms. Dosing here is, is pretty, pretty easy for most patients. You see roundworm, hookworm, it's a one-time dose. For kids, for adults, same strength, pretty easy to, to just tuck that away, and you can remember that dose. Um, tapeworms varies quite widely depending on the actual type of tapeworm. Um, the, the common dose is 15 milligrams per kilogram um, divided twice a day with a maximum daily dose of 800 milligrams. But the duration is what varies. Depending on the type of tapeworm, you may only have to treat a patient for eight days, um, up to or even more than two years. So it really, for tapeworms, if you think you're dealing with tapeworm, you're really going to want to know more about that um, what type of worm that is. The other thing specifically with tapeworm, and if you have a patient with neurocystosarcosis, which is that one that affects the brain and can cause seizures, um, you want to give albendazole with some sort of anti-seizure medication if they're not already on it, um, as well as a steroid, because when these worms start dying or the, they, when they start decaying within the brain, they're going to cause inflammation. That inflammation is going to lead to more seizures if they're if they're already having them, it's going to lead to more seizures. If they're not having them, it's going to cause seizures. So, so tapeworm is a very, very tricky thing you want to know more about. Pinworm. Why do we dose pinworm for one dose and then again in two weeks? Does anybody know? Have guesses. The eggs. Yeah, the life cycle and the eggs. Um, these eggs actually will last in the environment. So in your household, carpet, furniture, wherever, they'll, they'll be viable for two to three weeks. Um, so that leads to more time for that child who's crawling around the floor to ingest more eggs, even though you already gave them one dose, clean them out. Um, those eggs are still going to potentially be viable um, and living. So we usually repeat doses, especially with pinworm. Uh, for the most part, this drug is nice as well because it's, it's relatively side effect free. Um, GI, you know, you can imagine if you have some tapeworms and you give albendazole, um, once they start dying, it's going to cause potentially some more pain and irritation within the GI system as well. Um, so that's usually what we see. Pregnancy, depending on the resource you use, depending on, on where you're at, you're going to see varied answers um, for what to use uh, specifically albendazole in pregnant women. The, the easy answer is no. We have some other drugs that we're a little bit more safe or sure of their safety. Um, lactation, it's probably safe, but should be used with caution in those individuals. Availability, like I mentioned before, um, is commonly found in the world. Um, and while most pharmacies in the United States probably don't have it on their shelves at any one point in time, they can order it and it will be there the next day. Mubendazole, uh, very, very similar medication to albendazole. Um, dosing is, is kind of similar. It's pretty easy, but now instead of just a one-time dose, for most of them we're looking at a twice-a-day dose for three days, and then with most of them we're re actually repeating them. 
um, in three weeks. Pinworm has a little bit of a difference. You do 100 milligrams for one dose, repeat in 14 days, and repeat again in 28 days. Um, one thing I forgot to mention at the beginning, and I, I should have, because uh, I see many of you frantically writing, all of this is on the medicalmissions.com website. So if anyone wants to download this and not rest their, rest their hands a little bit for the next 40 minutes or so, feel free to do that. Pediatrics, again, um, same doses. So pretty easy to remember. Side effects, not really any different. GI, stomach cramps, um, maybe some nausea. <coughs> Pregnancy, um, here we see a little bit of difference where we know for sure we probably shouldn't use this drug in the first or second trimester. Um, if anyone's really bored and wants to read through the patient package insert, that actually says that for this drug. Third trimester we think is safe or has been shown to be safe. And then for lactation is, again, another one. Probably it is excreted in the breast milk. Um, but you see here we can give this to pediatric patients. So is that drug going to be a high enough dose that's going to cause harm to the patient or to the child? Probably not. Lact or availability, again, very common throughout the world and available in the United States. Ivermectin, another drug if you go into your local tractor supply store or feed store, you're going to find on the shelves for use in animals. Um, we see a lot of ivermectin use in cattle, horses, goats, sheep, etc. Um, very little in the United States as far as use in, in, in worms, primarily because we don't really see a whole lot of roundworm in the United States, and that's where we really see ivermectin um, having its real role. Um, 200 microgram per kilogram for one dose is, is what's recommended for adults. Um, Pediatric patients, roughly 100, or not roughly, 100 milligrams twice a day. Um, and then, again, a repeat uh, in three weeks after that three-day dose. Um, side effects, this one can have a little bit more of a, a side effect profile than the, the worm drugs we've talked about so far. Um, you see here it has rash, itching, potentially some fever. So you do have to watch that in patients. The incidence of this is still pretty low, less than 5% of patients um, with those, but... Overall, you, you will want to, you know, watch that in some of those patients. Not uh, an allergic sort of reaction where if you have a penicillin allergy, they are necessarily that worried about it. Um, but it, it, so it typically goes away. Pregnancy, lactation, not recommended. If you've got animals and you've given this to them, same thing on, on that. It's not recommended for, for pregnant or, or lactating animals. Availability, U.S. and worldwide. Again, U.S., local CVS, probably doesn't have it on their shelves, um, but can get it in, in a fairly quick manner. All right, pyrantal. Looking at pyrantal, primarily we see its use in hookworms and pinworms. Um, again, it's a weight-based drug. Looking at it, same for adults, same for children, with a max of one gram per day. Side effects, again, this drug is, is for the most part, uh, pretty safe. Most patients are going to tolerate it very well. Pregnancy, um, the other thing about this drug is it's done, it doesn't really get absorbed into the body a whole lot. It pretty much stays localized into the gut. So looking at pregnancy, um, it's not going to get into any concentrations that would affect the, the baby, um, or lactation will going to be just fine. Um, pyrantal, again, available throughout uh, the world. I've been, uh, where was that? I think that was actually Ecuador, um, where coming back uh, on the plane, the, the trip leader went around and was handing out pyrantal to everybody who'd been there um, because there was a good chance that we had gotten something. So, And I absolutely took it, had absolutely no problems. 
Didn't want worms. All right, proziquantel. Um, again, a drug that I'm guessing the students in here, pharmacy students, um, any students, have probably not even heard. Probably practitioners who've not heard of this, um, unless you spent time treating worms in the rest of the world. Uh, looking at doses, again, tapeworm is what we see proziquantel's use, uh, predominantly where we'll see this drug. Again, depending on the type of tapeworm, the dose is going to depend or, or vary a little bit, but we're looking at a body weight-based dose. Side effects, we have a little bit more of CNS problems with this drug. We see some malaise, some dizziness, headaches, and then again, your typical GI symptoms. Pregnancy, we think it's probably all right. In a lot of the world, they'll use it in pregnant women with tapeworm infections. Um, but there's not really any good evidence that it doesn't cause harm. There's just no evidence that it does cause harm. Um, lactation, for some reason, it's not recommended. Likelihood, that again, though, that it's not going to get into um, concentrations that are high enough that are going to affect that baby. Again, availability is throughout uh, the world. All right, so worms. Where are we going in the, with, with worms? Um, hookworm, tapeworm, there's actually vaccines being developed. You think, well, how do you create a vaccine for a worm? And this is not a vaccinology course. But, but briefly, you can kind of create a vaccine to uh, one component of that worm, and then that worm, when it's in, in, inside of your system, if you've had the vaccine, you're already going to have antibodies to that component. Without that component, um, that that worm is not going to be able to survive. Um, there's none of these that are available for humans, but looking at tapeworm, there is a tapeworm vaccine that we can give to pigs. Um, so they're undergoing research to see if we can modify this or just use the same one in humans. It's currently going through trials, um, making sure that it is safe for humans. Something about worms that I've debated whether or not to really throw in here, um, and I decided, obviously, let's go ahead and put it in it makes for interesting, fun stuff, is that we're looking, not we, I'm not, but researchers are looking at using worms in patients with some endocrinology diseases, diabetes even, um, and patients with some uh, inflammatory disease, Crohn's patients. There's evidence, there's actually pretty good evidence that some worms, if you give them to a Crohn's patient, their Crohn's symptoms are as controlled, or controlled as well as with any other medications that are out there. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'd have a hard time swallowing a capsule full of, of cysts of worms. Um, and then, you know, seeing some occasionally in the toilets and then repeating the process. But there is a lot of interesting research here. Um, one of the things you can kind of think about it is for you guys who are students or are even our practitioners, we don't see a lot of Crohn's disease, for example, outside of the developed world. One of the theories is that, well, it's because outside of the developed world, we have worm infestations in patients. So there's some interesting data, really, and if you have interest, send me an email. I've got a ton of articles I can send you because uh, one of the other things I teach is inflammatory diseases um, at the College of Pharmacy, and so it's kind of an interesting uh, cross of the two topics. All right, amoebiasis. Um, found throughout the world, really. Um, there's even amoebiasis in the United States. We'll have outbreaks occasionally. Not severe, not necessarily something we need to be concerned about, but it is something we'll see. Again, it's kind of, or not again, this is the first protozoal disease we'll talk about today. Um, transmitted through the fecal-oral route, um, and is the parasite Entamoeba histolytica. It goes by several different names, but that's the most commonly used and the one that's preferred. 
Um, again, found worldwide, United States, Canada even, um, on down throughout the tropics of, North and, or of South America, Africa, um, we see it there. Typically, most patients are going to just show up as maybe feeling just kind of off, kind of flu-like symptoms initially. Rapidly, I don't want to say rapidly, but gradually develops into cramping. Diarrhea becomes a problem. The diarrhea may be watery, may just be, or may be bloody as well, and then profound weight loss. Um, all of these can last for several weeks. Um, patients, a lot of times, will clear that by themselves. Um, other patients will develop abscesses within their liver. Um, so they'll start to show signs of hepatic damage. Many patients, 90% is thought, or actually have no symptoms at all. So they're carriers passing on amoebiasis potentially to um, others within their household or within their community. Uh, prevention with this one, again, kind of like with worms, is, is very difficult, uh, especially in the developing world where they don't have proper sanitation many times. Um, or they don't understand the importance of good hand hygiene. Even here in the United States, guys, I don't tell you this, you're in the restroom at the gas station. How many of you, how, not of you guys, of course, but how many of you see patients just go to the bathroom and then just walk right back out? So um, amoebiasis can be a problem, especially um, in areas without good, without good hygiene. Looking at treatment, for symptomatic uh, treatment, or patients who are symptomatic, even if it's just GI, um, if we, especially if, it's, if we know the liver is involved, it's, it's a two-step process. The first step is treatment with a drug that's going to get into the tissues, liver, to help clear um, the, the amoeba from, from the, the liver. Um, so looking at that, we use agents like tinidazole, which is available in the U.S., probably some of you have heard of, metronidazole, which I'm sure everybody has heard of and probably many of you have had at one point in time for something. Um, and then it's the second step, they'll follow up with a treatment with what's called a luminal agent. This will help rid the, the entamoeba from the GI tract so that it can't go back and reinfect the liver. The agents that are most commonly used are probably drugs that you haven't heard of for the most part. Iodoquinol, peromomycin, or diloxinide. Um, patients who are asymptomatic, we just find out, you know, maybe there's an outbreak, their family members keep getting this, we don't know for sure, we find out they have it. Those patients typically are just going to need to treat with a luminal agent. They won't need the metronidazole or the tinidazole as well. So let's look at these individual drugs. Um, tinidazole, again, is available throughout the world, including the U.S. Um, depending on where you're at in the world, tinidazole may be difficult to find, I understand, um, but largely it's available throughout a lot of the world. Um, fairly short duration, uh, only three days, maybe three to five, or I'm sorry, maybe up to five days if the liver is involved. Um, pediatric patients uh, will use in patients down, or it's recommended using patients down to three years of age. There's evidence that it's probably safe in individuals younger than that. But most of the research done throughout the world so far is only looking at patients who are at least three years of age. Um, side effect, again, mostly GI. Disulfiram, what's that? If you have a disulfiram-like reaction, anabuse-like, which what is anabuse? Alcohol. alcohol. So patients who um, drink alcohol with this medication will become violently ill. They will not want to take this medication. Um, so disulfiram, if you have patients who you know, even just drink a little bit of alcohol, um, warn them against using alcohol for at least two to three days after they finish treatment, and, and definitely while they're being treated as well. And then yeast infections, um, not just in women, but in men, uh, 
can, can get some jock itch sort of problems. Pregnancy, not recommended in the first trimester, second and third trimester. We think it's fine. Um, lactation, again, is not recommended. Likely okay, but not recommended. Metronidazole, very, very commonly found drug. This is one that you will find in any local CVS or Walgreens at any point in time. Um, adults, uh, pretty high doses are what we're looking at here for amoebiasis compared to some of the other diseases we see metronidazole used for. Um, maybe 750 milligrams for up to 10 days. Pediatric patients, again, weight base, divide it out um, and give every eight hours or three times a day. You know, if the baby's sleeping, you don't want to wake the baby. Um, side effects, again, similar as what we saw at tinidazole. They're, they're cousin drugs you can think of. Um, however, this metronidazole, again, if anyone's taken it, is much more likely to cause GI upset than tinidazole. Um, so this one we really recommend that you take with food, not that, the, not that you need it to absorb the drug, but just to help prevent some of the, the GI side effects. Again, pregnancy, lactation is the same, and availability is, is you can find this easily anywhere in the world. Iodoquinol um, is, is the luminal agent. So now we're going to start talking about the luminal agents, the metronidazole and tinidazole. You can think of as that first step. Um, patients who are asymptomatic, again, would not need the metronidazole or tinidazole. They would just need a luminal agent. Um, this one should be given after meals, and this does have a longer duration, um, 20 days, three weeks, you could think of, um, what you would want a patient to take this medication. Side effects, uh, similar stuff, GI, headache, um, nausea, vomiting, maybe some fever. Not recommended in pregnancy, not recommended in lactation. Uh, availability is, again, throughout the world, but you're not going to find this real easily stocked in a pharmacy in the United States. Um, Promomycin, very, very similar. Looking at this, um, is, is, based, or is dose based on weight. Same recommendations for children as it is for adults, looking at the, the weight dosage. Um, side effects, we see C. difficile diarrhea. Um, this one can cause some C. diff. Uh, which is commonly seen anymore in the United States, unfortunately, especially in nursing home populations, um, hospitals. Uh, and it's thought to be due to the, a lot of uh, antibiotic use, a lot of the, the gastric acid suppression use um, in the United States. And this drug as well has been shown to increase the risk of that. This drug is safe in pregnancy and lactation. It's, it's not absorbed um, by the body, so it doesn't really get out of that GI tract at all. Availability, again, even though you've probably never heard of it, um, is widely, is, is available in the United States, uh, but again, not going to be on the store shelves at any one point in time. Diloxinide. Finally, a drug we're going to talk about that the FDA has not approved, um, but you will see used throughout a lot of the world. Um, diloxinide is another luminal agent. So for that asymptomatic patient or that patient who's on step two of therapy, um, 500 milligrams three times a day for 10 days. Pretty easy for patients to take. Uh, pediatrics, this is safe for use in pediatric patients as well. Um, side effects, again, this drug is not absorbed real well. Um, so we see mostly GI. However, we don't have any good data, even though we know it's probably not absorbed real well. There's not really any good data as to whether or not we can use it in pregnancy or lactation. Um, 
what I'm told is a lot of the world actually does use this medication in pregnant women uh, as opposed to pregnant men um, and, and, and lactating women as well. Uh, so availability, not been FDA approved. Um, some of the drugs we'll talk about in a little bit, they've not been FDA approved, but they are available through the CDC as an investigational drug. This one is not one of those. Um, future of immunobiasis, basically, World Health Organization is looking at creating a vaccine, similar to what we saw with some of the worms, where they're um, inducing a, a vaccine or an immunologic reaction um, to a subcomponent, and then it, it seems to show um, that it will help, at least in the animal models that have been uh, used. And then also um, looking at this, the, where, where they got this idea was following some children um, and, and looking at entamoeba and those children who didn't have this. All right, so we talked about the two-step method. Here's a question for you. Looking at the two-step method, apparently this isn't working real well. Um, but looking at the two-step method, we said, well, you, first you'd use step one and then go to step two. So the question I want to pose to you guys is, is do you think you could get both steps at the same time? Is there any reason why you couldn't? Remember, step one, you're trying to clear the body, especially the liver, of the infection. Step two, you're trying to clear the GI tract. Anyone have any guesses? Yeah, you can actually. Um, the, for the longest time, we've always looked at treating this disease with a, that two-step process. Now there's actually very good data, very good research that says we well, don't need to separate the two steps out. You can give them both at the same time. Um, and it kind of, I mean, it does make sense. Drugs, both drugs are attacking different areas um, of infection. There's really no reason that you couldn't give them at the same time. So, in fact, you will see that um, depending, again, on where you're practicing. All right, Chagas disease. One of the most fascinating diseases, I think, that's found in this hemisphere um, is spread by this little bug right here. Does this bug, bug look familiar to anybody? Yeah, it's actually in Kentucky and Ohio and throughout most of the United States, except you get up to Michigan, Wisconsin, and points north. I guess you can't really go a whole lot further north in the U.S. than Michigan and, and Wisconsin. But, um, but you can find this bug throughout a lot of, of the United States. Um, here's the actual um, bug, that, or the parasite, the protozoal parasite that we're worried about. Um, here's how this bug attacks. Um, so largely we'll, we'll talk about this as well as far as how to help prevent patients from getting this disease. There's an interesting article that created a lot of, of debate within the, this realm of research um, last spring in the New York Times. Talked about stubborn infections spread by insects. It's called the New AIDS of the Americas. Um, and, and the point that the authors were trying to make was that this is a very severe disease, and it's, it's throughout the Americas. A lot of people took this the wrong way and said that this is like AIDS. This is really not at all anything like AIDS, um, but it is a very important disease. It's not new at all. It's been around. We've identified it in the early 1900s, um, so it's not new, but it's just kind of coming into the gameplay. So Chagas disease caused by Trypanosoma cruzi. Uh, again, not the same Trypanosome that we see with African sleeping sickness, um, Transmitted by a triatomine bug, which is that, that little bug. It also has another name of the assassin bug or kissing bug sometimes. Um, now, does anyone know how you actually get this from this bug? 
And I'm going to tell you, it's not the obvious answer. The obvious answer would be it bites you, and that's how you get it, through the bite. Right. As this bug is, is eating your blood, it's also defecating. And then you itch. And then some of that feces, which is where this, this trypanosoma cruzi is at, gets into that, that little hole that the bug made, and you can get it that way. The other way, and more commonly, like what we see with this girl, um, she probably, you know, got some of the feces on her hand from itching the spot, and then rubbed her eyes. And so it can attack the mucosal membranes as well. Estimated there's 8 to 10 million people affected throughout uh, North and South America. Um, in the United States... There's 300,000 people estimated to have Chagas disease. Is that shocking to anybody? Uh, shocking to me when I first heard that a couple years ago. Most of them are immigrants from Mexico, um, but there have been cases in Texas, southern Texas, uh, where this was actually obtained in Texas. The patient had never been across the border or any area where Chagas is endemic. So, again, this bug is found throughout a good chunk of the United States. So, Theoretically, it can spread, and we may have to worry about it, even up here in, in the Kentucky, Ohio area in the future. Very severe disease, arrhythmias, heart failure, esophageal, colon dilation, if it's left untreated in some patients. Not all patients actually need treated. Some patients just go through this mild phase, fever, swelling at the site of infection, and they get better. Others, especially those who are immunocompromised, whether it's through other diseases, medications they're on, like corticosteroids, um, develop the chronic phase. Um, so arrhythmias, heart failure, can be obviously fatal in, in patients if it's left untreated. Prevention is difficult, but again, if, if we we're able to get rid of this bug and where it lives, um, primarily we think of it living in the roofs of, of a lot of the mud huts and grass huts, um, that we see throughout Central and South America. At night, it comes down. It feeds on the exposed part of the body, usually the, the, the face, because you're covered up with a blanket or sheet. Um, so prevention, a lot of times, is just trying to get rid of, of those places where it, it lives. Treatment. All patients should be treated just to make sure they don't go into that chronic phase. I mentioned that most of the patients who go in the chronic phase have some sort of underlying condition, but that's not everybody. Some patients, even young, healthy individuals like a lot of the people in this room, could get this without, get the chronic phase without any other conditions. Um, treatment with the antiparasitic medications is going to cure roughly three, two-thirds to three-fourths of patients. Um, so not everybody. Even if we give them the proper drug, proper dose, and they take it as they're supposed to, not everybody is going to be cured of this. Um, currently, we only have two medications available. They're not new. One was developed, um, benzonidazole, in the late 60s. Uh, Nifertamox was developed in the early 70s. Um, so we don't have a lot of new medications, um, but we do have at least two that are typically used. So let's look at them real quickly. Benzonidazole, weight-based, um, basically the same dose um, in adults and pediatrics. Or pediatrics, for some reason, they get an extra half milligram per kilogram in some cases. Um, side effects... It can be a fairly, what we call, dirty drug. It can have some CNS symptoms, insomnia, dizziness, allergic dermatitis, uh, looking at neuropathies, uh, which is never pleasant. Um, pregnancy, we don't know. Lactation, we don't know. Um, this one is not available at your local CVS, Walgreens, whatever in the United States. It's only available as an investigational drug from the CDC. 
Uh, you can go on the CDC's website, and there's a phone number that you can call to get this medication if you're working at a clinic or hospital where you need it. Looking at nifurtamox, um, instead of for 60 days, like we saw benzonidazole, this one we actually have to use for three months. Um, side effects, relatively similar. Uh, most patients are going to get side effects, especially taking this for three months. Uh, dizziness, headache being the ones that are, are common. Availability is the same thing as what we saw benzonidazole, only available through the CDC if you follow their protocol for dosing it. Um, but in the rest of the world, just like benzonidazole, you can find it pretty easily. I shouldn't say the rest of the world, um, North and South America, where we usually see this, uh, this problem. All right, so the future. There's, there's several drugs that seem to be promising. Again, like I mentioned, these drugs have been around for 40-plus years um, without anything new. There's some newer drugs. This VNI it seems to be a pretty promising drug where 100%, at least of mice, were cured, and they didn't have any side effects, which is what we see as being problematic um, with, with the drugs we have available, the side effect profile. So at least we know we can cure mice of Chagas disease, but we don't know about humans yet. But at least it has some promise has some promise in the future. All right, so why should all patients with Chagas disease be treated? A, to prevent spread to others. B, to prevent long-term complications. C, it's cheap. May as well just give it. Um, D, we don't get want Chagas to get in the water supply. B would be the most correct answer. Um, you could say, well, you could prevent spread to others. You know, you get bit by this bug and you have it, then that bug can spread it to others. And so A is kind of acceptable, but, but the most correct answer would be to prevent the long-term complications. Chagas, we don't have to worry about it getting into the water supply. and We wouldn't ever want to give a drug just because it's cheap. Giardia. Is Giardia in the United States? Oh, yes. So you see here, I put the little picture of the campers. Um, that's where we're predominantly going to find this in the United States, is people who are drinking that clean, fresh, crisp, clear, cold mountain water. It looks so good, and you're out there, and then you get a nice little presence from these guys that are walking through the, the stream upstream. Um, it's a happy bug. usually has a happy, smiley face. You see the two eyes and the mouth. Um, it's happy to be in you. You're not happy it's in you. Make sure we understand that. Giardia fecal oral route. So we get this by eating uh, or drinking uh, infected, uh, this infected protozoa or infected food or water um, that has this Giardia lamblia. Um, looking at this, this is pretty impressive. An infectious person, so somebody who has this, is excreting 1 to 10 billion cysts per day. So a huge number of cysts, and then this is the scary part. Only 10 cysts are actually needed to cause an infection in somebody else. So that's why even if you just take a small drink of that fresh, cool water, you may get it because you don't need a very large um, amount of, of material to actually develop symptoms. Um, gastroenteritis, severe diarrhea, uh, severe dehydration, vomiting. Uh, one of my, my, both my children are adopted from Ethiopia, and one of them came home with this nice little present. Very common. You may see it if you're working in, in clinics or in pharmacies, hospitals, wherever in the United States, um, especially in, in adopted children um, from, from a lot of the world because Giardia is a very um, prevalent thing. One of the things that kind of separates it out is a temporary lactose intolerance. So 
it's kind of weird, um, but a lot of kids, if they have this, or even adults, if they have this, all of a sudden become lactose intolerant, along with their nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that they have because of this um, problem. Um, so lactose intolerance typically goes away once the patient gets rid of the giardia. Um, this bug in most people will go away without treatment, um, but it can last for four to six weeks. So you, you don't usually um, want to suffer the severe consequences of this without treatment. Um, rehydration is usually the big thing that we want to do from how do we treat the symptoms, make sure they're getting enough fluid because they are. They're going to be running to the bathroom like this kid, whoops, um, like this kid many times a day, six, seven, eight more times a day. Medications that are, that are used, um, we can kind of go through these pretty quickly because we've already talked about a couple of them. Metronidazole, tenidazole, um, nitazoxanide. So metronidazole. Uh, one of the things we see with metronidazole and giardia throughout the world is a lot of it is becoming resistant to metronidazole. Um, so metronidazole currently is first line, but because of resistance, um, it probably won't be first line for, a lot, for much longer. Side effects, everything else is, is the same as what we've talked about before. Dose is slightly different as to what we've talked about before. Tinidazole, um, dose again uh, is, is slightly different, just a one-time dose in our patients with Giardia. Um, but looking at it, side effects, everything else obviously stays the same. Nitazoxanide, um, a drug that you probably haven't seen in the United States but is available in the U.S., um, it can also be used, especially in patients that have failed metronidazole and maybe even failed tenidazole due to some resistance problems. Nitazoxanide can be used um, in those individuals as well. For the most part, it's not absorbed, so we see mostly GI symptoms. Some patients will get headaches, though. All right, leishmaniasis. I'm quickly running out of time. Um, leishmaniasis is a very, very, very complicated disease. Um, so there's a disclaimer, I think, on the next slide. Uh, you know, it talks about if, if you don't know what you're doing treating leishmaniasis, don't treat it. Get some sort of, of, of individual who has expertise in treating this because um, the drugs, some of the drugs that we use for it are, are, are nasty drugs. Um, with many side effects and potential long-term complications. Um, and leishmaniasis uh, can be a very, very deadly disease for some individuals. So you want to make sure that they're actually getting diagnosed um, properly. Like, we don't have time today to talk about all the different types of leishmaniasis, but, but treatments vary greatly depending on the type of leishmaniasis that you have. Um, and, and then the complications of leishmaniasis vary greatly depending on the exact causative organism of it. So uh, here's some uh, patients who have leishmaniasis. This is the common form. This is where this, this bug bit you, um, and you get this very nasty-looking ulcer that takes uh, usually at least a year to heal, um, if not longer, and, and usually is going to leave a very nasty scar. Um, and then this individual has leishmaniasis that's spread throughout kind of um, his body. So, leishmaniasis, again, caused by protozoal species or protozoal parasites. Again, there's several different leishmania within the genus. Um, so, again, treatment is going to really depend on which genus that patient has. Um, sandfly is what we saw here. This is a sandfly, roughly the size of, of a housefly. So it's not a little minuscule thing. Uh, it's something that you will see. 
um, found throughout most of the world, uh, looking at tropical, even subtropical locations. 12 million people is uh, the World Health Organization estimation for the number of people who are infected with this. So, again, it's a significant disease. Um, symptoms, skin sores like what we saw, fever, and then splenomegaly is kind of one of the hallmarks, though, where you have an enlarged spleen. Um, Four different types. We have cutaneous, which is the one that we saw, which is the most common form, fortunately. Um, diffuse cutaneous, which is what that individual, the, the gentleman in the top left had, uh, resembles leprosy, difficult to hear. Mucocutaneous, this is when you get it that goes into your nose, um, your mouth, your throat. Very, you don't want to have it. Uh, visceral, this is when it starts affecting uh, the spleen, like we mentioned, or the liver. Um, or the bone marrow. A lot of times they'll actually diagnose this by doing bone marrow samples, which is never pleasant. Um, visceral is the one that's, that is, is fatal if it goes untreated. Um, medications commonly used. Again, you really want to make sure that you know what you're doing, that you're using the right medication for those patients. Um, the antimony drugs, uh, meglumin, sodium stibogluconate, are showing resistance um, so the sodium stibogluconate and meglumine are the two that we're worried about resistance growing in the United, or not in the United States, in the world. Um, and then here's the, the statement. Make sure that you've got somebody who knows what they're doing, a lab that knows what they're doing, to make sure that you're really treating the type of leishmaniasis that you are, um, that you think you are, because if you treat it with the wrong drug and they actually have visceral leishmaniasis, they're not going to get better and potentially die. So... Very, very nasty. All right, liposomal amphotericin B uh, is something that we'll see. Um, asterisk just means it's the drug of choice for visceral. Um, looking at side effects, if you work in a hospital in the United States and see amphotericin, whether even the liposomal is the one that's supposed to be have the least side effects, it is still a nasty drug. Um, from cardio, CNS, dermatologic, endocrine, um, we usually recommend... Uh, starting with a low dose just to make sure the patient's going to tolerate it, kind of a test dose. Um, pregnancy, probably all right. Lactation, we don't know for sure, but currently not recommended. Liposomal amphotericin B is, is available throughout the world in the U.S. It's expensive. Um, no matter where you go, amphotericin is going to be expensive. Sodium stibogluconate, uh, one of the, the drugs that's been around for a long time for treating leishmaniasis, one of the antimony-containing drugs. Um, this is one that is showing increased resistance. Uh, so we don't use it for visceral. It's not the preferred drug for visceral because that's the one that you can die from. So because of, or more likely to die from. So because of resistance, um, not recommended. But it is recommended for mucosal cutaneous. Um, I have here in the cutaneous that it's given IV or IM. One of the other things that they're looking at for future treatment is actually injecting right around, um, kind of sub-Q essentially, right around where that scar, where that, that ulcer is. And that is showing some promise and seems to work. Um, side effects, aching, arthralgia, GI, some arrhythmia problems with the QT prolongation, although fortunately that is rare. Uh, in the United States, only available through the CDC. So you have to, again have to call them and they'll ship it to you if you meet their protocol standards. Meglumine, another antimony drug. This one you know, is not even available through the CDC if you call them. Um, but in a lot of the world it is. So again, we see resistance to this one growing. So we don't prefer it in visceral, but mucosal, cutaneous, we can try it. 
Side effects, pretty much exactly the same as what we saw at the previous drug. All right, multifacine um, is a drug that we can use if we're worried about resistance pattern. Amphotericin is still the preferred drug, um, but we would probably use miltefacine before one of the antimony-containing compounds, um, worried about resistance. But it, you can see it is preferred for mucosal cutaneous as well. Um, this drug uh, we know is a teratogen, so we should not use it in pregnancy, uh, and then not recommended for lactating uh, women and their children as well. Peromomycin. Uh, again, a medication um, that we'll use. They're actually, the, the U.S. Army uh, developed a compound, a topical compound, to use in troops that were stationed in Iraq um, during the, the Gulf War, first and second, because a lot of them were developing leishmaniasis. Um, and so they've actually now have a topical compound with peromomycin, which seems to do a pretty nice job. Still going to take a long time to heal for many patients and still likely to leave a scar, but it, it can drastically reduce the amount of time for healing. Um, side effects, uh, for the most part, especially if we're using the IM formulation, we're, we're going to see some of these problems, uh, again, like we've mentioned before. All right, leishmaniasis, future treatments. Uh, again, we, we mentioned um, that there is a topical formulation of promomycin. We're looking at topical formulations of some of the other drugs as well. Um, so there's promising research being done there. So hopefully we can eliminate some of the side effects that we see with some of those drugs. There's vaccines, uh, several promising vaccines. Um, they've been actually researching vaccines for leishmaniasis for a number, number of years um, and have had little success. Now they're finally starting to have some success. So maybe, hopefully, we'll be able to, to get some vaccines um, in the not-too-distant future. All right. Wow. I didn't leave any time for questions because it's right on time. Um, but I am happy to answer any questions that you guys have or, or attempt to. Um, if you need to run to the next session, um, I, I understand. Don't feel like you have to sit down and, and stand around. So thank you for your attention. Hopefully you found it somewhat interesting.